Keep the wretched missile on the point of cross. I'm getting out of force. Stop it, knock it off. Talking about put them work in the field with the cotton soft. Put the plate in beef, they get the cake, they do it. Put the paper in, think in the briefcase. Rapping the head beats, triple decent on the day to the hair, but the rap you can't beat, no release date. For peace sake, that didn't be safe. You ain't no legend with a name in the street, that's PH. Your speed race to proceed the break. Keep the pace. The heat I make a cream made the beat at a decent rate. It's me, David, reinstated to be the greatest. To keep it basic, to be degraded, don't even say it. I keep the faith in my tunnel vision. I'm pedigation with the mic in hand. I'm like a fight fan. I see you weighing. I'll see you later. All right. That is I Am Many, and you are listening to Bay Originals. I'm your host. Liam McCabe, welcome to the show. That's right, that uh, that intro clip is from a Bay Original himself. That's a good friend of mine, David. He goes by I Am Many. We grew up together on Ridge Boulevard uh, on different sides of 69th Street. So shout out to David. Uh, I did not get permission, full disclosure, to use that um, as I'm recording it. But maybe, uh, maybe tomorrow I'll get permission. But uh, I don't think David will sue me, so... But a, but a big shout out to David. Hopefully we can get him on the show soon. He's really an interesting guy. He has a lot to say, uh, not only about uh, art, hip hop, but politics as well, and uh, a lot of a lot about the history of this neighborhood. And you know, I think that's what this this podcast is going to be about. Uh, we we'd like to talk about art, kind of a lot of the art uh, that kids like David and I grew up um, uh, taking part in. Uh, culture, the culture of Brooklyn, the culture of the neighborhood, the idea of the Brooklyn neighborhood as a microcosm for the world, uh, for a slice um, of New York City. And as far as I'm concerned, and I think everybody from any neighborhood they're from, they think their neighborhood is the center of the world. And, you know, being from Bay Ridge, I certainly feel that way. So we're going to take uh, Bay Ridge as a, as an idea, as an idea for the block, for the neighborhood. Uh, but we're going to expand that. Uh, I think there's a lot of interesting people right here in the neighborhood. Certainly a lot of people that I grew up with. Um, and the people that just live here really from all over the people that grew up here and, uh, Bay original doesn't mean that, uh, you have to have grown up here and, uh, uh, were born and raised in Brooklyn. There's a lot of Bay originals that just moved in and that's what makes, Bay Ridge really cool. Uh, it's an immigrant community. Uh, it's a community with a lot of different people. Uh, you know, all walks of life, all economic walks of life. So we're going to try and incorporate that into this, into the podcast, and sort of into the theme of the show as well, and uh, try to interview all kinds of people uh, around the city and uh, in all walks and stages of life. And I think that's really interesting. Uh, I certainly have come across. A lot of different people in my life, um, in in many different uh, economic uh, places. Uh, I'll give you an example. You know, uh, we're we're just got through the election here in 2020, but um, Donald Trump. Uh, the first time I met Donald Trump was in the year 2002. I was with a friend of mine, Joe Thompson. We were uh, in uh, in Manhattan. We were walking down Fifth Avenue, and uh, my friend Joe spotted 
Donald Trump in a store picking out ties. And we waited for a second for him to come out, asked for an autograph. A few of us got the autograph. Uh, Joe, Big Joe, as he's known, did not get the autograph. I wonder if he still holds that grudge. But uh, right after we had met Donald Trump, who, you know, was one of the rich and um, powerful people in New York City, probably about 50, uh, 50 feet after there was a guy sort of begging for change. And I thought that that kind of captured uh, New York very well and just the different realities that people can live in in this city and in the neighborhood. Um, that, that contrast is what we hope to kind of bring to this show and bring to life. Um, I know some of the people in this neighborhood that live in the uh, biggest houses, probably the most successful people. Uh, this neighborhood I know, I also... Uh, spend time talking to some of the homeless people and everyone obviously in between. So hope to get a really interesting uh, cross-section of the neighborhood and of the city of New York and everything that makes it up. We're certainly living in interesting times. So um, let's get started. This is the uh, inaugural podcast. So what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about um, my ideas, um, introduce myself a little bit, and uh, at the end of the show, uh, I'd like to read a short story that I wrote uh, about my dad. Uh, this was, it was done for a class at St. Francis College. Uh, I had taken some time off, um, and a professor of mine, Terry Quinn, called me up and said he was doing a course for memoir. And I talked to him about my dad. My dad had passed away, had been passed away for a few years, and I had been talking about writing a story or some kind of short story about my dad, and he encouraged me to sign up for the class. So I came back to St. Francis, and I took that class. And uh, as a part of that class, the final project, I, I wrote this story, and I, and I think it's a really cool story. It'll it'll tell you a little bit about who I am and my dad. Some people have uh, read it. A lot of my friends have read it. It's never been published, and I've never uh, read it publicly, so this will be the first time. And uh, I think it's a cool story. It's maybe it's a little sad, maybe it's a little happy, but it it's about my dad, and uh, my dad certainly was a Bay original. He was a real character. He was a very cool dude, and uh, I miss him a lot. And uh, I wish he was around. I wish he was around that, so that I could talk to him and uh, get advice. But um, he left me with. Uh, he left me with a lot of great stories, and uh, he instilled in me a lot of great values. And uh, he was just a great—he was a great guy. And uh, well, anyway, we'll read uh, a story about him, and I think it's interesting, and I think it'll also get into sort of the types of characters and intriguing people uh, that we'll talk about on this show. So, uh, yeah, so let's let's talk about some of the things we want to talk about. I mean, you know, obviously, I'm involved in politics um, right now. As it stands, um, I was helping out uh, a lot of the candidates here in Bay Ridge, the Republican candidates, uh, for uh, for some of the different offices. Uh, as it stands tonight, uh, tonight, uh, Friday night, um, November 20th, uh, uh, the candidate for um, uh, Senate Vito Bruno has uh, has conceded his race. It was a it was a great race, and unfortunately he fell a little short to uh, to Andrew Gennaris. And uh, 
my good friend, Mark Skuskevich, uh, also uh, ran for office this year. He ran for the assembly. Uh, and uh, as it stands right now, uh, that race is too close to call. By the time you hear the hear this, uh, it, it, that may not be the case. But I can tell you that right now his opponent has pulled up by around 600 to 700 votes ahead of him. He had been a few thousand ahead going into the mail-in ballot count. And there are about 800 or 797 ballots to count. So uh, it does not look good for Mark. Mark has to uh, get most, if not all, of those votes. Um, or if, uh, if he doesn't, but he gets a large majority of that, uh, then uh, if, if the lead by either one of, uh, of them comes down to 200 votes, then or around that number, that is half of one percentage point. There's around 40,000 votes cast, which is just phenomenal. Uh, for that office, uh, then that will trigger a hand recount. So as of now, we don't know where the race stands. Uh, I will say that the assembly member has declared victory. Uh, also, Mark had declared victory on election night. He was up by 3,000 votes. It looked really good. And uh, there were, at that time, 5,000 uh, absentee votes listed. And uh, what, what has happened is uh, more absentees have come in. So both candidates have claimed victory, but most recently uh, Frontis. And as I said, it, uh, it's an uphill battle at this point, statistically very tough. But uh, Mark has said he's going to wait till all the votes get cast. However, it has been an, a fascinating election nonetheless. And regardless of the outcome, um, both uh, Mark and Vito uh, have done very well. Uh, on the other side, uh, we have Nicole Maliotakis, who uh, clearly won. It took her a few days. They had to count some of the absentee ballots there. But uh, when it became clear that uh, Max Rose uh, had no shot to overcome the lead, uh, he conceded uh, not too long ago. So Nicole Maliotakis is going to be our new congresswoman. So congratulations to her. And uh, hopefully we get an opportunity to interview her soon. Uh, and also uh, Michael Tenusis who won here in Bay Ridge in the 64th Assembly District, basically taking over for Nicole. Nicole will vacate her seat, and uh, uh, Mike Tenusis will be, be, be the Assemblyman for, for that district. So that's really good, and uh, we'll also like to get him on the show as well. But uh, it's not all going to be politics, this show. I think, like I said, we want to talk about art. There are a lot of different artists uh, from many different art forms that grew up in the neighborhood and all across the city. And there's a lot of, uh, I don't think, art and artists, we, we listen to them enough and hear what they have to say. And just not only about their art, but all kinds of things, their perspective on life. Uh, technology, uh, certainly interesting to me, you know, uh, a lot of the uh, artificial intelligence and how that's going to uh, play into our world and uh, uh, how that's going to uh, uh, play into our economy and how that's going to play into our job market. And, uh, you know, what are the jobs of the future going to be? And uh, what does that mean for workers? And what does that mean for labor? Uh, just some interesting topics. And again, just a lot of interesting people in my life, I think, uh, that might have something to say about that and some interesting perspectives. Uh, economics. Definitely want to talk about economics and just culture. Obviously, this is a podcast 
uh, around the neighborhood. So we definitely want to get uh, the culture of New York City and the culture of Brooklyn um, and the neighborhood, the block, the block party, the block association, the stoop, and a lot of the culture uh, of Brooklyn, a lot of the history of Brooklyn. So there's going to be a lot of cool things I think we can talk about on this show. Uh, and that's how I got the idea. I got the idea uh, by thinking about the neighborhood as a great uh, microcosm and as a, a great example of all the different people from all over the world uh, that exist in one place. So it's a it's a it's a it's a great starting point to have a podcast, I think. And I already have a lot of people that have agreed to come on. Uh, really, it's just going to be a matter of time before we uh, we can get them on. So, uh, without further ado, let's uh, let's read that story about my dad and uh, a little intro. Um, my father, um, my father was a Bay originally. Was a really uh, interesting guy. He was he was a pretty wild man. Um, he was a Bay original though by way of Flatbush, and uh, he grew up in Flatbush, and uh, moved to Bay Ridge when he met my mother. Uh, my mother was from Bay Ridge herself. Um, so was my grandfather, and my grandfather passed away uh, two years ago. My mother passed away this year, and uh, they were all Bay originals through and through. And um, yeah, I'll talk about them in some other shows, but um, today we'll we'll read a short story that uh, I wrote um, probably back in 2008 uh, for a class with Terry Quinn, and I'm looking at it here. I, I called it up on email, and one of the first uh, persons I emailed it to was John Kennedy O'Hara, and uh, John Kennedy O'Hara is also a Bay Original. Uh, he is a, a political figure with a, with a very interesting story about politics and uh, being prosecuted and eventually vindicated. He's got a fascinating story too, and hopefully we, we, we get John John on this show as well. So um, this is Empire of Dirt. Keith had no business being drunk with my father that night. First of all, Keith was in the last week of the fire academy, and he could blow his career. Secondly, my father had an early appointment with Detective Steve Mona. Detective Mona had happened across my father on the Ponderosa a few nights ago and was looking to help him out. I would later find out, or rather Keith admitted, that they were so blitzed that the midnight freight train had almost hit them both. It never seems to fail. Whenever I don't go to the Ponderosa with Keith, all hell breaks loose. Actually, that's not true. Hell breaks loose whether I'm there or not. I guess I just wanted to be included in all the anarchy that goes on down there. Let me tell you about the place. The Ponderosa is a fictional place from the TV show Bonanza, but it's also the place my father lived at for the last few years of his life. In some ways, his Ponderosa was also fictional. That's because naming the place he lived on the Ponderosa denotes an identity as if it were somewhere or possibly a home. However, my father was, for lack of a better word, homeless. His Ponderosa was just a few scattered belongings and makeshift living place he constructed and occupied on a stretch of land in a cavernous space along the Long Island Railroad train tracks in Brooklyn. 
The reality is that his living quarters were a wretched and eerie space of concrete, dirt, and railway. The Ponderosa was the fictional place we created, and it's there I spent many nights talking with my father. Homeless is perhaps an imperfect description of the condition. In many ways, the people afflicted with homelessness are simply houseless or apartmentless or roomless or, at worst, shelterless. Many people are not living in a home. Home, as the saying suggests, is where the heart is. In that sense, it's a construction and a belief and consequently can be anywhere it is felt to be. When my father and I were together, we most certainly were home in the Ponderosa. It was as if the shadowy physical reality surrounding us ceased and all we had was our time there shared together. They called it the ditch when we were in Our Lady of Angels Catholic Grammar School. We had heard the urban legends of the dead bodies, used needles, and general menacing artifacts we might stumble upon if we ventured down to the train tracks, barrowed under the Bay Ridge Towers or the Twin Towers of Bay Ridge. It was Donald Akejian, or Donnie, that was the first to organize our first mission to the ditch. Donnie had older brothers who skated, biked, wrote graffiti, and generally lived the ideal life to us seventh graders. Most of our knowledge of things dangerous, including the existence of the ditch, was disseminated through Donnie, whose original sources were no doubt his older brothers and their wild friends. Donnie was the first to skate, write graffiti, walk the subway tracks, and generally initiate what we called missions. Later, Donnie would be the first to smoke pot, have sex, and in the category of the only he brought a gun to school. It was only a BB gun, but it was almost suicidal for a Catholic school kid to do. Although he was not our leader, he was the element of our group that seduced us with his daring exploits. Most times we copied his behavior, and other times we just watched in innocent awe and approbation. At 29 years old, he quit his job at Verizon to join the Army as an infantryman in the middle of two wars. He joined specifically to go to Iraq. That's who he was, and is, an absolute nut job. Whenever he had an idea, he had my ear. Yo, listen, we're going to the ditch after school. You coming? Donnie said as he pulled me aside on a walk back to school from the pizzeria. Yeah, of course, I said, as I wondered why he asked me in confidence. Uh, are they coming? Look, I'll get Mo, Frank, and Steve. You get the rest of these fucking pussies. I had been deputized by Donnie. In the back of my mind, I wondered whether I was being pulled aside from my ability to recruit or because if by verbalizing possible opposition out loud, I posed a threat and therefore jeopardized the mission. Uh, yeah, no problem. I got him. I'll pick up Ryan, Mike, and John on my way to your house. Fuck Mike, he said. If he gets caught, he'll rat us out. And Frank won't, I contended. Fine, but you're responsible for him, he said, respecting my assertion and allowing me to believe we shared leadership. Okay, better wear boots and fatigues if you got them. He offered in a way that foreshadowed the peril we might encounter. It wasn't a question. We played war games all the time. He knew I had fatigues and boots. It was a waiver. Yeah, I got him. I signed. Years later, my father was living in Flatbush on Avenue P. It was some old lady's apartment 
he was living in. The woman was in a nursing home. It was huge and the rent was cheap. He had got hooked up from his childhood friend, Jerry Hayes. He'd been moving a lot during that point in his life, and it was unclear if he'd live in these flatbush digs long. The lease was in her name, and she was dying. We hung out a lot there that summer. I was in high school and had my driver's permit, which allowed me to drive with a licensed driver. So my father would come along for drives in my mother's Jeep Cherokee, back and forth from Bay Ridge to Flatbush and across Brooklyn if we so wanted. It was our summer. After a few rides, he told me I was good enough to drive back and forth without a licensed driver. Damn good, he would add. Years later, when he crashed my truck, I discovered his license had been revoked since 1986. Basically, I was breaking the law all along, but he allowed me to gain the confidence I needed, I would later think. As for what he would have done if we were ever pulled over, well, let's just say he's not a plan B sort of fellow, or as he would say, I'm a man of faith. One evening, he suggested we walk back to Bay Ridge on a set of tracks. It was the Long Island Railroad tracks that stretched from his house to the ditch in Bay Ridge. He took me straight to a hole cut in the fence on an overpass on Flatbush Avenue. Clearly, he was familiar with it. We walked along the tracks that evening towards the path of the setting sun drinking sodas. Mostly he talked. Stories from his youth and the mischief he would get into with his friends. Something about the trains that ran on trolley lock lines that would run parallel to the tracks we were on. I couldn't remember, to tell you the truth. I just loved visualizing my father's waywardness and contrasting them in my mind with my own. Now, I don't want you to pull any shenanigans like that, he warned dutifully. I just think you're mature enough to hear these stories, he said, in a tone that was aware of its own absurdity. He knew I would do what I wanted. Besides, we were trespassing together. That's when he thought to ask, have you been down here? We made it all the way to Sunset Park, and I was wondering when and if you would ask. It wasn't information I was just going to offer up, not out of fear, but pride. Yeah, I said. I used to come down here with Ryan and Donnie, OLA days. I said as if to say, I am your son, you know. It was not long after that summer that my father had to move out of his Flatbush apartment to my mother's apartment, his ex-wife, as she was always quick to remind him. It was supposed to be temporary, but he ended up staying for over a year. It was during that time that he began walking his dog shenanigans on the train tracks that ran through the ditch to the waterfront. One day, the following spring, my father asked, have you been down to the waterfront in a while? The ditch? I said, yeah. He said, all the way down to the docks. Yeah, a couple of times with Keith, we took our dirt bikes, I said. Well, bring your bikes down tomorrow to the end of the dock and look for a caboose and bring your friend Keith if you want. He said, a caboose? I said, puzzled. You mean the end of a train caboose? Yes, like the end of a train and come hungry. We're having a cookout. A cookout? In the ditch, on the caboose of a train? I, I said, are you feeling okay? Yes, a cookout. And bring friends if you like. And this caboose is not the end of a train. It is the train. 
he said. Actually, the caboose is pretty stationary, so it's not going anywhere. On Friday after school, I called Keith and told him what my father said. I don't know what he's talking about, but it could be fun, I said. You game? Hell yeah, he said. It sounds fucking insane. I know there are mad freight trains down there, but I didn't know about a caboose. You ever seen one? Nah, but I haven't been down to the dock with the warehouse on it in a while. You know, past the freights? True. I'll be at your house in 20 minutes. We got to the hole in the fence that we usually squeeze through first. Keith went over, and then I passed my bike over the fence. Shit, get down, Keith said with panic. What? I said as I dropped the bike on him. Fucking cops, stay down. Holy shit, you scared me. I said, are they gone? Yeah. Thanks for letting go of the bike on my head. Shut the fuck up. I passed in the next bike, and then we carried them down to the bank of the ditch. We rode to the water through the zigzagging maze of freight trains that were laid up for the night. As we cruised down the makeshift corridor created by the walls of trains on either side, we could smell the wafting aroma of cooking flesh in the waterfront air. Well, he wasn't lying about the barbecue, Keith said. No kidding, I said. As we turned past the last corner of our steel labyrinth, we caught the view of a caboose standing in the orange glow of the midday sun, sinking into the narrows. It stood apart on the edge of this freight train parking lot, covered in wonderful colored graffiti, rising up like a cartoon painted on the rusted steel backdrop that surrounded us. And yet it was blocked off, in many ways, a sort of alcove by the river. I went to call out to my father, but felt funny yelling, Dad! to this caboose with a grill on the end of it, smoke rising up in this strange setup. Willie! I said. Then my father popped out the back door of this technicolor caboose in a Hawaiian shirt with a beer in one hand and a burger flipper in the other. You made it, he said, overjoyed. It's a caboose, all right. I, I can't believe it, I said. Fucking A, he said. I hope you're hungry. Cooler on the side's got soda. I don't take it you want a beer. Me and Keith looked at each other and back at my father. He took a sip of his beer and with a toothy grin, under a foamy mustache, he said, Welcome to the beach house, gentlemen. By the middle of summer that year, we had been to the caboose many times for cookouts and general relaxation and all the hobo comforts on the waterfront, as Willie would say. Weeks had gone by now, and it was late August, and I had convinced one more friend to take the ride down, along with Grace, my girlfriend of a few months. Liam, are you sure we can't get in trouble down here? Grace said as she began our ride to the booth. It's fine, I told you. Me and Keith have been down here like 20 times. My dad's been here all summer, okay? Just relax. Hop on my pegs. Dude, my father told me he made some improvements to the caboose, I said. Like what, said Keith. He said he's got running water from a fire pump. He's got the hoses connected and everything. Yo, your dad belongs on the A-team, bro. He's nuts, joked David. The caboose had indeed been transformed by late summer and had earned the title of Beach House my father had christened it with months earlier. He had running water from a nearby fire pump and electricity from a 30-foot floodlight in the middle of the train yard. 
When I confronted him about blatantly stealing these utilities, he retorted, Look, we're not stealing anything, just, just liberating some natural resources. What if you get caught? I said, Listen, sonny boy, the summer's almost over, and I already have been caught. He said, What? His name is Hector. He's an old Puerto Rican guy, and he runs the patrol down here. What did he do to you? I said. What did he do? What did he do? What he did was have a drink with me. Shit. <laughs> he laughed. So I guess you're friends now? I said. Yeah. He was mostly concerned about the fire violation of the water pump. But we played Monopoly over some scotch last night, and I landed on waterworks. <laughs> no, really, Dad. Really? Well... What it is, is he's a veteran, World War II, but we're both 101st Airborne now. Stop your worrying and let's listen to some tunes. Then we sat there, after the sun had set, around our campfire, talked about the summer and our plans for the school year. We realized it would likely be the last time we were there for the year. We were all taking it in as my father reached over to David and said, Hey, turn that up. Oh, God, now he's drunk, I thought. Come on, Dad, you're embarrassing me, I said. Come on, sing along. Watson's gonna play us out. My father growled at us. What? Watson who? Play who out? I said, Doc Watson, silly, gonna play us out. This show. If you don't know, just keep the rhythm. Then he stood up, and he started to bob around the fire, snapping his fingers as I caught his face between the dancing flicker of the fire and the illuminated brush behind him, I saw a man possessed with the proud ecstasy of his perfect creation. And there he danced, celebrating like some ancient Algonquin after a fruitful summer. He called out to the spirits and sang along with his bluegrass rendition of the Gershwin classic. It's summertime and the living's easy. Catfish are jumping, and the cotton's high. He was alone. Come on, snap at least. This is our lullaby. He said, our lullaby. I said, lullaby to who? To the beach house, boys. We're putting her to sleep for the summer. And again, he was in his trance. Oh, your daddy is rich, and your mom is good looking. So hush, little baby, don't you cry. The next summer, my father let his friend Paul in on the beach house, and my friends and I visited less often. By the end of that summer, Paul had left my father's dog shenanigans alone all night, and one time alone all day without returning. The dog had turned restless, scared and tried to return home to my mother's apartment five blocks away. My mother's apartment was the dog's second home when my father was between living arrangements. The dog, for some reason, crossed the highway, perhaps to avoid some construction, and was hit by a car and killed. My father found out, days later, by chance, after calling every agency he could, the dog was not only hit by a car, but had managed to make it all the way up the 65th Street entrance to the BQE, and was knocked over the side of the highway two stories. It was the drop that killed him. Paramedics came and did what they could, but the dog was far too gone. 
My father was lucky to get the body and buried it in an unmarked grave on the top of Dead Man's Hill in Owlshead Park. It overlooked the bay and the train yard. My father was distraught, as was I. We both loved that dog, although my father fell into a very deep depression over it because he felt he was responsible for the dog's death. Some years had gone by before my father was able to return to the ditch after that, but eventually he spent more and more time there in later years, but less as a temporary escape from the outside world and more as a complete retreat from the real world. Then, by my freshman year in college, my father had lost his final fight with the transit authority and he was either fired or quit his job. I really never knew the truth. For a while, he stayed at his brother's house in New Jersey, but never got along with him well. And at this point, he was completely homeless. In the spring semester of that year, my father had returned to a wooded area of the ditch and set up camp. Then, on an early spring morning before class, my father took to his setup. I came down to meet him. I heard a bark. Was that a dog? I asked as I climbed up an embarkment to what looked like a World War II-era pup tent. That's Jackson, he said. Is that your new dog, I said. Well, I rescued him. This little Russian girl was crying in front of St. Andrews and was asking the parishioners to take the dog before her mother took it to the pound. She was hysterical. So what was I going to do? I asked, <clears throat> no, does the dog have any food? So I took the dog and, well, it's my responsibility now. Well, at least it's my security system. Oh, it looks like it's part pit bull. Yeah, it's definitely part pit, but full fucking stupid, let me tell you. <laughs> Plenty mean, though. Well, why is his name Jackson, I said. She said she named him after Michael Jackson. I, I guess she's a fan, he said. You know, it kind of looks like Michael Jackson, I said. No way, my father said. The dog's much more handsome. <laughs> my father hated pit bulls, actually. He thought they were vicious. But this dog did have some character. He kept the dog through the summer and into the fall. Taking care of it helped him finally bring closure to the loss of shenanigans. And when my sophomore semester began in September, I found myself visiting his camp and bringing him coffee and bringing the dogs treats before classes. As it began to get colder that year, I began to worry more about my father's safety and for that matter, his sanity. It was during that cold fall that my visits to my father had an eerie quality to them, not knowing what to expect. Finally, when it got too cold, my father went to a veteran's shelter in Long Island City. This became a pattern for a few years. Spring, summer, and early fall in the ditch, and winters at the shelter. Then my father won a settlement for about 30 grand and moved to an apartment for a year or two until the money ran out. Soon he was living back in the ditch, which he had nicknamed the Ponderosa. But every year he moved further and further away from the site of the original caboose by the waterfront and deeper into the tunnel-like structure under the Bay Ridge Towers. It was as if his reality ran on a parallel track as well, as he sought the increased shelter and darkness of the Ponderosa. He also moved further 
from sanity. At some point, I gave up trying to save him or, or even understand him. I just went down there to get drunk with him. We had great times in the following years. Often Keith would come down with me and would bring my father meat for cookouts, 30 packs of bud. We'd sit there, talk about politics and current events. We'd talk about the Mets, read his poetry. We came to forget, lie back in the river of Lethe and truly enjoy each other's company. Then a few years ago, I got a job as a campaign manager for the city council race in the same neighborhood my father was homeless in, a secret I kept from my candidate in the local Republican Party. I had stayed away from the Ponderosa that year. Out of shame and fear of losing my job, Keith too had begun the fire academy and was less frequent with his visits. I saw my father a few days after we lost the election that year and expressed how saddened I was. I had told my father I would see him soon, perhaps the Ponderosa. On Thanksgiving, a few weeks later, I returned from my grandparents' house late and decided it was too cold and late to bring my father a plate of turkey, as I normally would do. A day or so later, my mother said she overheard some rumors that my father had not been by the coffee shop in a few days, a part of his daily routine. You should check up on him, she said. I agreed and gave Keith a call. Listen, I haven't heard from Willie in a while. Let's go check up on him. Yeah, okay, he said. I'll, I'll get Tommy. Who else should I bring? Sure, bring Tommy. I'll get a six-pack because if he's not dead, he'll want a beer. Ha <laughs> ha. We joked. Five minutes later, Keith was at the door. We walked down to the Ponderosa and climbed over the fence and into the ditch. We scanned for his campsite and called out to him. Guess he's not here, Keith. <gasps> I gasped as I dropped the beer. Oh my God, Keith said as he grabbed me. It's okay, man. He bear hugged me. There on the floor of his Ponderosa was my father, laid out Christ-like and clearly dead. We stood there on my father's empire of dirt, frozen for a while in solid embrace, crying in the cold November night. As Keith and Tommy left to call the cops, I stood alone with my father's lifeless body and began to sing. I sang to remind myself I wasn't dead either, just numb. Then, as I began to hum, I caught the cold irony of what I was singing as the steam left my mouth and the tears froze to my face. Summertime and the living's easy, catfish are jumping, and the cotton's high. One of these mornings, you're gonna rise up singing, then you'll spread your wings, and you'll take to the sky. I finally learned the words, Pop. You'd be proud. Good night. But until that morning, nothing can harm you with your daddy and mommy standing by. Hey, Liam, is that you? Were you saying something? Keith called down. What? Oh, no, it uh, was nothing. Come upstairs, man. You'll freeze, he said. 
I have been determined to stand watch over my father's corpse in an eerie emotion in an even eerier place. No, I'm not going to leave him. Liam, it's freezing. Let's just get some coffee, he insisted. Come on, he'll be fine. Tommy is going to watch him for a while. You shouldn't stay here. No, man. I ain't going to leave him. I, I can't. The words were now coming out of my mouth. But I was not talking. I was not even standing there. Liam, the firehouse is upstairs. Gambadella is going to get coffee for us. Let's just warm up for a second. Keith said calmly now. Come on, let's get some coffee. Coffee? Okay. Okay, I said. That's it. Uh, that's the end of the story. Wow, I haven't read that in a long time. Uh, it's a bit sad. And uh, sorry to... Uh, Sorry to read such a uh, a sad story on this uh, inaugural podcast. Certainly, the show is not going to be <laughs> uh, a lot of depressing and sad stories, but uh, it uh, probably captures really a, a big part of who my dad was. That uh, that really is a true story. A lot of the, the the names haven't been changed; those are real people, and that was a real event. Um, just to give you some context, my um, my father, uh, my father was a pretty troubled guy. Um, he worked for the transit authority. He was a track worker uh, for many years of his life. Uh, he was also involved in TWU. He was uh, a very proud uh, union member and a delegate, and uh, but just got in a lot of trouble at work. And uh, his union activities, oddly enough, did not help him because uh, he was such a radical that the union couldn't stand him, and, and neither could uh, neither neither could management. You know, I guess the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, but he was a real pain in the ass, and um, he didn't make a lot of friends, and uh, it was very difficult when he, when, he, when he got into trouble at work, really over drinking. And I think he fought for, uh, to try to get sober a bunch of times, and um, wasn't able to do it. And I've actually come across a lot of his... Uh, literature, Alcoholics Anonymous, and some other stuff, and some of his notes and letters that he never sent to me, uh, really sort of describing his frustrations with not being able to um, um, stop drinking. And I think that was a big part of what led him to losing his job and ultimately uh, sort of moving into the Ponderosa, which really was down on the uh, train tracks here in Bay Ridge, uh, the Long Island Ra Railroad train tracks run from uh, right underneath the Bay Ridge Towers out to Flatbush, as I talked about in the story, and all the way out to Long Island. And uh, they end at the waterfront there, and that's called the Cross Harbor uh, Railroad. And really what it is is uh, barges float freight over uh, into Brooklyn, and then, in, and then those uh, freight trains will go into Long Island. Uh, it used to be much more active many years ago, but um, th that's how they got freight across. There is no tunnel that connects um, Brooklyn and Long Island, for that matter, to the continental United States. And there's a big uh, discussion over that. And that maybe is for another uh, episode. We can maybe talk to uh, some of the people. Uh, Congressman Nadler, that's kind of his pet project that he's always been trying to do. And some other politicians have, uh, have supported it. Oddly enough, the conservative party 
was behind that. I know Mike Long was supportive of that, um, an odd alliance there. But uh, some other politicians, the current city councilman, Bob Holden, was always against it for many years prior to him being a city councilman. So it's just another tangent about the Cross Harbor Railroad, just a fascinating subject in and of itself. Hopefully we can do an episode just about the Cross Harbor Railroad and, and uh, all the different characters that, that are playing to that. But uh, that was uh, something my dad was interested in too, the, uh, the idea of it. He certainly supported it. He thought it would be a great, a great thing to do. And uh, he lived down there and he ultimately died down there. And um, it, was, uh, it was tragic. Um, it was very sad to, uh, to find him uh, that, that day. And that was a few days after Thanksgiving. I had missed him. I normally would go down there. And that's right around the time, around Thanksgiving, when he would um, basically leave. It started getting cold, usually around December, and sometimes uh, closer to January, and then he would go to a shelter or, or go to my uncle's house. Um, but I would visit him and uh, bring him some food and talk to him. But, you know, around that time, that was 2005 when my father passed away. And uh, I was the campaign coordinator, sort of uh, managing a lot of the day-to-day -day stuff for Pat Russo. Um, uh, who ran for city council and, and lost, ultimately. And um, my father actually, when, when, when he had passed away, one of the things I found under his pillow, he had had a whole really crazy setup down there underneath the Bayridge Towers. La Ponda Rosa really was wild. And uh, there's a documentary that uh, uh, the New York Times had done about subways and he was captured in that and I'll have to share that with you guys one time. You can find that on my YouTube channel if you look up Liam McCabe. You'll see that documentary. It's called New York Underground and you'll see my father uh, uh, down there. Um, but yeah, it was, um, it, was, uh, it, was, it was a sad it was a sad time in my life and it was, it was sad for him. Um, but uh, it really was it was a wild time as well. The years, uh, the years we would go down there and and uh, and uh, party with my dad and talk to my dad. My dad had a following himself. You know, there were a lot of uh, homeless people who uh, you know kind of looked up to him and were were intrigued by him. I, I bumped into a guy not too long ago who had said he was homeless at the time. He's kind of you know gotten his life together and remembered my dad. And he also had a following sort of amongst some of our friends. You know, we would go down there. And uh, drink beer. We're probably all uh, developing our own alcoholism at the time, and uh, we would uh, we would spend Friday nights in the Ponderosa before, I guess, going out to uh, going out to uh, drink in the rest of Bay Ridge, and uh, you know, cause chaos. But that was uh, that was what we were doing at that time, and um, it was it was very interesting. And it was sad, and it was happy, and um, I uh, I miss him. I miss my dad, and sometimes I wish that uh, I could talk to him about a lot of a lot of things that are going on in the world. I wonder what he'd say about all this stuff. But it's interesting that uh, this uh, this this podcast is is taking place now, right at uh, right around Thanksgiving. I think it's timely. Um, yeah, and that happened. That happened in two thousand and five. Uh, and just to give you again a little background, my my friend Keith, who my best friend, 
was in the Fire Academy at the time. And, and my friend Tommy Gambadella had just become a cop. And he was actually in the 6'8". So one of the things we would do is we would I'd kind of check in with him and say, look, we're going to go check on my dad. And so to get permission, I guess, from, you know, some of the cops in the 6'8 to kind of go down there, you know. And uh, so if, uh, if we needed help, we could call them and also so that we didn't get in trouble. But um, because my friends were uh, becoming cops, becoming firefighters, I was getting involved in politics, you know, being down there and getting involved in mischief. We were probably in our mid-20s. We really had to kind of grow up. And that was just a very sad time, just trying to, you know, distance myself from my dad. I had a lot of guilt. Uh, I kind of had to tell him I couldn't, I couldn't hang out anymore. I couldn't go down there and drink and, you know, play rock and roll and, and barbecue and, you know, forget about life. I, I had to like sort of uh, think about life. And um, oddly enough, I lectured him a lot and I thought I had everything together. I thought I had all the answers at, uh, at 25, 26, 27. I, it turns out I didn't. And, uh, you know, I would eventually go through a lot of my own uh, troubles with drinking and, and trying to figure out life myself long after he passed away. But um, that was what was going on. And in 2005, so just to bring you back, it's funny, we're in November, but uh, it was right around this time, uh, Pat Russo had lost. And I had put a lot into that uh, campaign. I was hoping he would win. And uh, it was just a very sad time, you know, like all uh, campaigns when you lose, it's great when you win. Uh, and I remember being really sad about that. Didn't really want to talk to my dad. I had seen him once. He came to my mother's house. We sat on the stoop. We talked a little bit. And that was the last time I saw him alive. And then the next time I saw him, uh, he, he, he was dead. And I remember, I remember um, feeling very guilty for a long time. I felt very guilty that I had not seen him on Thanksgiving. And uh, when they did the autopsy, just to let you all know, I know this is turning into a very morbid show. I can promise you the future shows will not be this sad, but uh, he passed away due to hypothermia. So he froze to death. And when I when I had found him, he had some of his clothes kind of taken off. And, I, you know, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know if there was foul play. And the uh, coroner had uh, told me that this was very common, that when you when you die from hypothermia, you begin to take off clothes because the last few stages you get really hot. You you know you think you're hot. So, so that's what happened. And I you know I'd always thought one of us we would be drunk, we'd get hit by a train, or there'd be foul play. You know it was a very it's a very dangerous and scary place. And I thought maybe something had happened to him, uh, some kind of overdose. You know alcohol pills. I didn't know what had happened, but it turns out that it was just he was in a very dangerous place, and it got cold like many homeless people. And uh, sort of a tragic way to die. Um, and I did. I found him. He was laid out with his arms, sort of Christ-like in a way. And, uh, you know, the symbolism for me uh, for a long time is, has been that uh, uh, he sacrificed himself so that I could, you know, have a better life and, and do the right thing and not make the mistakes he did. And I, I'm trying to do that. You know, I'm trying to do that with my, my boys, with my wife. And uh, with this community, and maybe hopefully with this podcast, we can uh, we can talk about a lot of interesting things. Hopefully, <laughs> some more, a little more upbeat and exciting, but maybe some deep, uh, deep conversations, and maybe some 
maybe some sad stories, maybe just some some things to help uh, convey the uh, the human spirit um, and uh, the struggle, the struggle that we all go through here, living in this uh, community and living in this city. So uh, that's it. That's it for uh, this first show. This. Uh, <laughs> Sad show of uh, Empire of Derp. Uh, wow, I haven't read that in a long time and uh, brings up a lot of emotions. But uh, our next show will be, we will uh, be interviewing Mark Skuskevich. Uh, and I have a lot of other shows lined up, but uh, he is going to be one of our first guests. Uh, hopefully it will be Assemblyman-elect. We don't know. Uh, it is an uphill battle as of tonight. Now it's early in Saturday morning at this time. So maybe in a day or so we'll know uh, what what the status of that is. But either way, whether he's an assemblyman-elect or uh, just finished uh, a very close race, uh, a few votes behind, we're going to interview him and talk about what this campaign was all about, how he uh, did what he did. Because regardless of the outcome, one thing is for sure, Mark... Um, got more votes uh, for as a Republican in the 46th Assembly District uh, than any Republican prior to winning that seat uh, almost 100 years ago. So uh, win or lose, it was a, tr a phenomenally successful campaign. And we'll talk to him a little bit about that and himself being a, uh, a Bay Original. Uh, we both went to high school together. We, uh, we got out of Bay Ridge for high school. Um, which a lot of a lot of folks did uh, that uh, that I went to school with at Bishop Ford. So, so we'll talk to Mark, and uh, that'll be that'll be next week. So, thank you guys for tuning in. And uh, if you have any suggestions, if you uh, would like to be interviewed, if you'd like to read some short story or read your poetry, uh, that's what this show is going to be all about. Um, so please, you can uh, you can hit me up on Facebook. You can also send uh, send me an email at bayriginals at gmail.com. So that's bayriginals at gmail.com. Or you can comment on the Facebook page uh, or send an inbox. So thank you very much. Talk to you soon.